Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and around the world. And as ever in our time together, we have got a lot to cram in. I'll give a few thoughts in a minute to uh, the Shadow Cabinet reshuffle uh, instigated by Keir Shuttle. Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer uh, earlier this week. Uh, we have some fantastic questions on a range of different issues. Uh, yeah, electoral reform crops up. I told you we'd do an electoral reform special. That crops up. Uh, there's tons of other things, though, uh, as well to reflect on. Keir Starmer's leadership, Boris Johnson. Uh, that's all to come with your uh, incredible insights and range and the questions come from everywhere Poland Canada you name it as well as of course across the UK they used to say that on Radio 1 didn't they across the UK um, and oh yeah so but before that a few notices uh, for us all hope you're taking notes first of all an apology for me that uh, the podcast has come out later than usual I've been so busy at the weekend, and that might apply for the next few weeks. So I think it's more likely that the podcast will be coming out on a Tuesday or Wednesday, first thing Wednesday, over the next few weeks. So the best thing to do is uh, to subscribe, and then it just comes beautifully automatically uh, when it has been recorded and put on the platform and all the thing and the music put in and all that kind of stuff. Um, so then you will get it. I say it's like in the olden days when we all, all used to get newspapers delivered. Do any of you still get newspapers delivered? I used to look forward it so much the arrival of the newspapers each morning. Uh, we don't get them delivered now, but podcasts get delivered instead. So do subscribe. Um, and just a reminder: uh, Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special is live at the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham on December the 8th, and then the annual Rock and Roll Politics Christmas Special at King's Place on December the 9th. It's live and being streamed as well, for those of you around the world who can't make it. So that's all going on. And one other thing as well, uh, thank you so much. Many of you have emailed asking for these uh, signed uh, kind of stickers that are that could be put in the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, as Christmas presents. So I've been really busy the last few days. They will all be with you. I've got the stickers, got the envelopes, got the stamps, keeping the post office going. So they will be with you very shortly. Uh, and for anyone else listening, tuning in for the first time, it's the dream Christmas present. Uh, I noticed it was in the Sunday Times books of the year actually on Sunday the prime ministers we never had 11 prime ministers we never had 10 chapters uh, dun, 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 dun. anyway if you would like a message to somebody if you buy it as a Christmas present just email me at the usual email address which I'll give you and then um, yeah I'll send send you whatever you ask me to write and uh, they will can then you get the book, put it in the book. It's the dream Christmas present. Uh, the email address, you all know it now, steverick14 at icloud.com. That's steverick14 at icloud.com. Okay, the shadow cabinet reshuffle. 
I think anyone looking at the new shadow cabinet, and it, and it is very new uh, in uh, many respects, uh, would have to argue objectively it's a more formidable front bench team. More people who are, to use that cliche, big hitters. Uh, and more people who understand the rhythm of politics and how you uh, make an impact in opposition, which is not easy. It's not... Um, you cannot be judged by the implementation of policy. Uh, it, so you have to take a stance and make it convincing and credible. And it has to be part of a wider uh, messaging strategy, which comes actually from the leader, not the shadow cabinet. I'll come on to that in a moment. In a way, a good shadow cabinet, and this is a good shadow cabinet, this um, certainly stands comparison with the current cabinet uh, in terms of uh, weightiness, suppleness, uh, and integrity. Uh, well, it, it exceeds the current cabinet, but that's a low bar. It exceeds it by quite a wide margin. Uh, but having a decent shadow cabinet is a precondition to electoral success, but by no means a guarantee to electoral success. It's very interesting if you look back to, I mean, Labour have lost so many elections, you can look back to previous shadow cabinets in the run-up to elections, and some of them were really, really strong. I was very struck when I was writing the chapter on Neil Kinnock in the book The Prime Ministers We Never Had at just how strong his shadow cabinet was in 1992, uh, the build-up to the 1992 election. A great tribute on one level to Neil Kinnock's leadership after the traumas of the 80s. He had put together a highly credible uh, alternative government in that shadow cabinet. John Smith, the shadow chancellor, very popular at the time. Actually, to uh, Neil Kinnock's torment, he, he was way ahead of Neil Kinnock in the personal ratings of Labour's team. Blair and Brown were there, of course. Uh, Robin Cook was there. Harriet Harman, Jack Straw. It was a team that would, although have been deeply inexperienced, most of them would have not had any experience of government, but that, of course, was true in 97. Uh, but uh, John Smith did. Uh, he was in the cabinet towards the end of that 70s government. Uh, but it was, it, it, it was as formidable as the one that Keir Starmer has assembled, and they lost for the fourth time in a row. So although you need a formidable shadow cabinet to challenge and expose the weaknesses of a government, clearly it doesn't guarantee electoral success. I'll come on to what is required for that electoral success in a second uh, in terms of the shadow cabinet being an element of it, but only an element. Um, but before doing so, I think what it does show is that... Uh, Keir Starmer, although having to learn some of the arts of leadership at the centre of the political stage, being an inexperienced politician, an MP for a few years before becoming leader, compared to, say, 
Blair, who was uh, an MP from 83, becoming leader in 94, 11 years of experience, or Neil Kinnock, who joined the House of Commons in 1970 and became Labour leader in 83, Keir Starmer, an MP for five-odd, five-ish years, becomes leader and has to learn the arts uh, and has is learning quite quickly actually that it's very different from being director of public prosecutions being leader of the opposition it's an art form but one skill he has shown again and again and it is a skill and it is a essential requirement of leadership he's ruthless um he has already sacked one shadow chancellor in an otherwise botched reshuffle in the summer um and now Rachel Reeves is established in that role, and it's working, clearly. And I think they should do more things together, him and Rachel Reeves, leader and shadow chancellor, for all the tensions. Blair and Brown did quite a lot together in the build-up to 97. Um, and this time, because it's been so wide-ranging, he has been more ruthless still. And he clearly wasn't intimidated by... Angela Rayner suggesting that the two of them should get together to discuss the reshuffle in terms of who goes where. There's no reason why he should do that. Leaders rarely consult their deputies over the details of a reshuffle in opposition. Uh, so he's established ruthlessness. But this is the key to electoral success in British politics at Westminster. It, it's almost symphonic. Everything has to cohere um, and it comes largely from the leader the pressure on a leader in British politics is immense we are a party-based system but there is a sort of presidential culture uh, and so what has to co cohere is this there has to be a sense that policies are arising from values and the messaging of those policies is credible exciting and coherent and that everybody is singing the same tunes at the top i.e the shadow cabinet and way below that as well and that um, coherence is not in place yet the sense of a clear ownership of the future via the values of your uh, party which you constantly redefine uh, to suit the mood of the times and then you own the mood of the times and that really is dependent on the leader but that leader needs a very effective team uh, behind him or her now he's got the effective team and it's to his credit that he's got it because it's tough sacking people uh, and reconfiguring uh, a front bench in the era of Twitter where it becomes a rolling news story, who's in, who's out, who is delaying things, and there were clearly delays uh, on the day of the reshuffle. Uh, it didn't happen speedily. Uh, my understanding is that quite a few of the people involved, and certainly one or two uh, of the big figures of this reshuffle, were in quite lengthy negotiation uh, before resolution was reached. But he has asserted himself in the changes, and um, they were clearly necessary. Uh, there are some questions about it actually coming up in a moment. Um, so uh, now we need the symphonic mood music 
that is the essence of winning. So for Labour, we've only got these two examples of Wilson in 64 and Blair in 97. Uh, both uh, actually kind of sees the theme of modernity, which is partly a con because modernity is ill-defined uh, and uh, rootless, uh, but also quite clever for those very reasons. It can have wide appeal. But that modernity uh, theme related to a whole range of different issues, from education to the use of technology to how the NHS was going to be uh, improved and so on. Um, so it began with an assertion of values, then the policies arise from them, and you constantly, all of them, have to explain why they are advocating what they are advocating. And at the same time, constantly, minute by minute, expose the weaknesses of the government and then explain why they're going to be a better alternative. So that's the sort of symphonic mood that's required for electoral victory. But it's obvious, it seems to me, that, say, let's take a couple of examples. Lisa Nandy uh, is much better placed as uh, shadowing Michael Gove on the levelling up agenda. Uh, absolutely uh, speaks to her strengths uh, than she was as shadow foreign secretary and I think by the way David Lammy who is a very powerful speaker uh, and, and actually a very good interviewee two things that you need in opposition uh, don't underestimate the importance of being a good interviewee you've only got words in opposition uh, so he, he, he will do well I suspect to shadow foreign secretary uh, the return of Yvette Cooper is necessary because she remains one of the most formidable forensic uh, operators in uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, whether she should have had shadow home affairs is another question. Uh, she's done that uh, brief before. Uh, there are she, she's you know the, her constituency is quite fragile uh, in that sort of red wall area and uh, she's going to have to balance the need to hold the seat with taking on Pretty Patel, whose crude, kind of ruthless, brutal, ill-thought-through populism will resonate with some of Yvette Cooper's voters in her constituency, uh, sadly. Um, so that will be a challenge. I'm sure she's capable of rising to the challenge. She's done it as chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, but she would have been equally powerful in other policy areas um, if, if that had been available. But anyway, it's one of the most senior posts in the Shadow Cabinet. So there are two examples, clearly, of... Uh, in fact, a lot of the women now in the Shadow Cabinet are really effective. Uh, I, I think Lisa Nandy will be with the levelling up agenda... Rachel Reeves, I think, is proving to be a very effective shadow chancellor. And Yvette Cooper hasn't got to prove it. She has been effective. Uh, and Bridget Phillipson, who has been uh, really... It's a very difficult job, the one she had before, shadow chief secretary to the Treasury, because you are completely dominated by the shadow chancellor in terms of public projection. 
uh, and yet she managed to shine in that role very unusual so she will have the chance now to shine on a space which is hers and hers alone as shadow education secretary so so so, so the women in the shadow cabinet are going to be really formidable um, as part of that team and as individuals so it's going to be interesting to see how it all uh, develops but as i say that is not a route in itself to electoral success it's a precondition uh, not a guarantee um, and let's um, see how it all develops in the coming weeks and months but actually I think it went quite smoothly there was all the fuss about uh, the reshuffle and Angela Rayner and her speech and whether she had been consulted and so on but I can tell you any reshuffle cabinet or shadow cabinet in the era of social media is going to face traumas and trouble on the day in some form or other uh, so you know given that it was um, by the end of the day he had done his reshuffle and got his team in place the only thing which I kind of feel very wary about is the kind of briefings that accompanied the reshuffle similar to the ones after his party conference speech um you know this shows Keir is strong he, he's taking on the left he's doing this he's doing that um i know where it comes from uh, they, they're still getting focus groups and polls showing that corbyn's leadership remains an issue and a problem for them so they want to signal distance at every available opportunity but i can promise you this all voters notice when briefings go out saying oh look at us we're taking on the left we're slaughtering the left we're going to kill them and all that kind of stuff is a dysfunctional party at war uh they don't say oh yeah oh we're going to come back to labor now you know oh yeah he's he's taking them all on and oh yeah there's a this battle going on but the fact that there's a battle is a good thing shows he's strong they never do they didn't in the 80s uh, when Neil Kinnock had no choice but to take on militant. Um, and the winners, Tony Blair and Harold Wilson, well, Harold Wilson constantly balanced his party, which was the only thing available to him at the time. Uh, and he won four elections. And Tony Blair, it's a great myth that he, in inverted commas, took on his party. Clause 4 was a kind of easy hit. Uh, it really didn't trigger a great violent battle um, and many of the internal reforms had already been done uh, the only time he he did take on the left was when he blocked Ken Livingston from being Labour's candidate uh, as London mayor and he later had to apologize for it literally he made it part of a party conference speech to say sorry uh, for blocking Ken Livingston um, so that was it it's a complete myth that ostentatiously taking on hailing battles with a section of your party uh, leads to victory. Voters who don't follow any of this, they'll have no idea, most of them, that there has been a reshuffle, and they'll have not heard of a single figure in the reshuffle, um, but will clock if there's a war going on internally, and they won't come back. Anyway, there's a few thoughts. Now, over to you, and... Um, Blimey, yeah. Now, I warned, threatened an electoral reform special 
because so many of you are interested on the subject of electoral reform. Um, we're not going to do that special today. Some of you will be relieved to hear. But here are a few uh, of your thoughts. Uh, Scott Crosswell, enjoying the podcast as ever. Thank you, Scott. And I know I've got to come back to you with a uh, article you sent me, and I will do it at some point. I'm just really busy at the moment. Um, I've noticed an ongoing debate recently on Labour's position on PR. Well, there certainly is one in the questions on this podcast. Uh, many criticise Blair's government for not reforming the voting system. But Alan Johnson made an extremely good point, and he is a backer of PR. He said that because Labour had a majority of nearly 200 for eight years, uh, up until 2005, Blair would be telling half of his MPs to vote for legislation that would result in their job uh, going in the next election due to a more proportional uh, system. The issue of voting reform is complex. Uh, it will only come about when there is a lab-lib government. Do you agree? Well, I'm certainly sure it won't come about in the unlikely event of Labour winning a majority of around 180 at the next election. But that's not going to happen either, Scott. Um, so, But it is difficult. The path towards it uh, is energy sapping and would involve some MPs voting for their own demise. Um, but um, so, yeah, I remain as doubtful and sceptical as ever, I'm afraid. I know some of you were converting me a short time ago. But um, here's Emma Bunnell, who follows uh, politics and Labour politics very closely. By the way, Emma, I think you've got COVID uh, saw on Twitter. I hope you're okay. Um, on electoral reform, I'm just so absolutely fed up with how much energy we are wasting on this wet, wishful thinking. I'm not anti-reform. I probably support AV plus more than any other system. But like all of them, it's flawed. But that's beside the point. I could have the best idea for the best system in the world. But you have to beat the old system to get a government that might implement it. And with respect, electoral reform is not going to be the galvanising force that sends voters to the polls in their masses to bring about change. I'm with Emma on this, as you all know. Um, and I know you get cross with me about it, some of you. But I just think this is energy sapping of no interest to most voters. I mean, remember, there was a referendum on electoral reform and the turnout was terrible, except for where I live in North London, where there were queues out of the polling station for miles. Um, but, you know, it, it is it is an important debate because it is so fundamental to our democracy and how we elect governments. So here's an alternative point of view. Venetia Kane, I believe in electoral reform because I believe we should have governments which more fairly reflect the wishes of the voters. First past the post only rarely brings about minority or coalition government, but we need these to bring about the compromise uh, and moderate policies that most of us want. Yeah, well, you see, the the problem with that is that you can get a coalition which actually doesn't really reflect the views of um, anyone specifically and directly because no one votes for a coalition. Um, in a confused article editorial before the uh, which election, the 2015 election, the independent, it was all over the place by then sort of did an editorial you know when newspapers endorse a party that kind of said vote for the coalition um 
it was odd for lots of reasons, but one of them is that you can't vote for coalitions. Uh, you vote for a party who then ends up compromising all over the place. Look at what the Lib Dems did when they moved in with uh, the Cameron Conservative Party. Uh, and, you know, so they reneged on a hell of a lot of the manifesto. I'm kind of doubtful, but uh, Angus Swanson is with Venetia Kane. Uh, the reality is that we already have a three-party system, four-party system in England and Wales. Pl possibly add another one uh, if you put in the Greens as well. You definitely got it. The Greens are going to be an interesting force at the next general election. He says it's all distorted by first past the post. But as Emma Burnell suggests, they are all in different ways distortions. It's a really complex issue. And what is the route to all this? And do we want to spend huge amounts of political energy on it? You know, we've just spent years on Brexit and all that kind of stuff. I remain sceptical, but keep trying to persuade me because I'm, I'm not wholly rooted to um, the current system, which, as you all know, tends to lead to a one-party state in England. Uh, you know, but I mean, that's partly to do because the Labour Party hasn't got its act together as much as other factors. Anyway, let's move on to a triumphant Connor Jones who says, I wasn't going to ask a question this week until I woke up to the news that Nick Thomas Simmons was going to be uh, moved in the shadow cabinet reshuffle. It was just two weeks ago. I wrote to ask you where he was and said he should be replaced. Yeah, Connor as Hamlet, was it Hamlet who said, my prophetic soul? Uh, you, you, are, uh, you are the one who got it absolutely right. And I think the, you know, Nick Thomas Simmons, as I said to you when you wrote that email, is, is an interesting uh, figure. He is writing a book on Aaron Wilson. He's written other books. But he, he did tend to appear on TV, very kind of shadow grainy uh thing from his house he obviously has bad broadband uh, a kind of blurred figure and the message was blurred and I, I think um, Yvette Cooper will give um, Pretty Patel a much harder time and god does she deserve a harder time so yeah you got it right okay Dominic Lee long time listener first time emailer even longer attendee to rock and roll politics I have the ticket stubs to prove it, That going back to 2014. Blimey, uh, Dominic, that must be when it all kind of started happening in terms of live shows. So thank you for being a loyal attender of those live shows. That was in the year of the coalition, Ed Miliband, leader of the opposition. We're talking ancient history, Dominic. You and I must be about 150. Um, anyway, uh he was wondering, this is really interesting, I hadn't clocked this. Um, I saw Keir Starmer had appointed David Blunkett to chair a new advisory panel for young people entering work. I'd like to hear your take on it and Blunkett more widely. I work as a teacher in a primary school and uh, get a fair amount, have a fair amount to say about the subject of education and politics. One issue facing education at the moment is teachers' skills, ironically a hangover from the new Labour era. 
A lot in the profession uh, now are children of Blair, where the literacy and numeracy hours reign supreme. This in turn led to a decline in other curriculum areas, meaning that many teachers struggle to deliver those areas as they lack confidence in them. And as a result of this and other factors, Dominic is not keen on David Blunkett taking up this post. Uh, yeah, well, Dominic, I didn't know about it at all that he had been put in this post. It's interesting. David Blunkett is one of the uh, Labour figures I've known for, God, a heck of a long time. I, I was the BBC local government correspondent in the late 80s, the era of the poll tax. Uh, incredible politics. And David was uh, Labour's local government spokesman, having got into the House of Commons, having been a famous leader of Sheffield Council. Uh, and I've liked and admired him ever since. I mean, everyone would have to admire him uh, because he he has managed to master briefs and documents without being able to see in a way that is truly extraordinary. And when I've spent time with him, um, I forget that he can't see, you know, because he is so engaged with everything. Uh, he's a remarkable figure. But I share your scepticism about this appointment for a different reason. Uh, Keir Starmer seems very dependent on figures from uh, that new Labour era. Uh, now, I understand his rationale. They were winners. They won elections. Uh, and he wants to win an election with an absolute determined focus. But it's a bit like uh, if when Blair and Brown took control of the Labour Party in 1994, they turned to sort of Harold Wilson's advisors and ministers to guide them this time. You know, it would be the equivalent of, you know, Blair appointing Joe Haynes and Bernard Donoghue uh, to his team, uh, they, they, they being two figures from the Wilson era. And I'm sort of detecting an over-dependency uh, on figures from an era. We've got Gordon Brown doing a constitutional review uh, and so on. Uh, Peter Mandelson, evidently an influence. They all come, you know, with experience that needs to be uh, valued. Uh, experience, a sense of the past matters. Um, but they are inevitably burdened to some extent by the past. It was there. I think Peter Mandelson actually is much more shaped by the 1980s than his experience with New Labour, which for him was very traumatic. Um, as you'll have seen from the Blair Brown New Labour series, where he breaks down in tears reflecting on one of the unfair sackings. Um, but I, you know, when he was in the cabinet, but I, his kind of formative era was the 1980s when he gave up every minute of his life to try and make Labour, to project Labour in a more modern way in the media. But we're not in the 1980s now. There are some parallels, but nowhere near enough. There are many different things that need to be learned. So there are danger being over dependent on figures from a previous era. 
uh, Sarah Murphy uh, writes, she's a great uh, pro-European campaigner. Um, my question is, how do we get people to re-engage with politics? So many said they weren't interested in politics when she's out campaigning. But politics, as she puts it, remains interested in them and can do real harm to their lives while they're not paying attention. How can we urge them to pay attention? Sarah gets to the heart of a key, key issue, uh, which is the dangerous disengagement of politics. We are so untypical in our interest in politics. Um, and yet I think our interest does provide hope because, you know, I reckon uh, us lot could get anyone interested in politics if you spent a bit of time with them. Uh, you know, the, the, it's very interesting. When I go to Spurs, I'm a season ticket holder at Spurs, and I hear all the people around me talking about football and spurs with a depth and analysis uh which is extraordinary i kind of listen in and say, oh yeah i see oh yeah there's that oh yeah so that's why that player's doing this and oh yeah there's oh well, what's old conte up to now you know he's the manager and um i think if only you could tap that same interest into politics the kind of capacity for engagement would be there um the disengagement is terrible, you know, the, and it's not helped by uh, the way politics is broadcast in the media. There's a sort of patronising view from many Oxbridge graduates at the BBC that people can only put up with uh, a two-minute report on a news bulletin or a six-minute interview on a kind of outlet of any sort. Um, and that, that guarantees a, a continued disengagement. But I'm afraid I kind of have to say as well, I do to some extent blame voters for disengaging. You know, if, they, if these people can be uh, completely gripped by a football team that has nothing to do with them, it's completely irrational. These multimillionaires from different countries uh, belonging to a team fleetingly. Uh, you know, these people are being touched by so many things going on, as, uh, you know, Sarah suggests there is an, almost a responsibility to feel engaged. You know, why are the food shortages on shelves? Why did Britain have this colossal death rate uh, in the first COVID phase? Um, and so on. Uh, making connections, positive connections too. Why is it that sometimes there is an expansion in, uh, you know, health service provision? There, there are reasons for it. And similarly, when there is a collapse in that provision, there are reasons. Make connections. Um, and it's much more than say, oh, Boris, he seems like a good bloke. You know, oh, he delivered Brexit um, and, and end it at that. Um, but it is, it's difficult because I'm, I'm, I know there are ways you could engage with these uh, people. And that's, you're not saying vote one way or another. You're trying to say, make the connections and it's really interesting and there's a drama as well to follow which is as exciting as football or you know the, the twists and turns on coronation street or whatever is the mass viewing soap opera at the moment um but boy is it a challenge at the moment i think the level of disengagement in england is higher than it's ever been it's never been high uh, but higher than it's ever been 
thank you, uh, Sarah. And uh, Jordan Fleming writes, uh, I usually enjoy the po- podcast while walking my dog in the southeast of Poland, although I'm currently sitting in Toronto, having fi- finally been able to visit my family after two and a half years of COVID. Oh, I hope you're having a good time, Jordan. I hope you get back in the light of current developments, which will no doubt feature in a future podcast. I've been thinking a lot about where the chinks in Boris's armour are. As you've pointed out in previous podcasts, Sleaze is one of the weak areas for the Tories. Ish, ish. Uh, It has been in the past, Jordan. Um, Sleaze is a way in for the opposition. You've also pointed out that Johnson is strong only as long as he's seen as helping the Conservatives from an electoral point of view. He's perceived as a winner. But uh, he wonders uh, from Canada or walking his dog in Poland whether uh, the Tories will uh, say, hold on a second, if Johnson continues to stumble, should we put Rishi Sunak in now, several years before an election, um, and let him establish himself instead of waiting to see what happens? There's a lot of talk, as you know, uh, even as you relax in Canada, if you are relaxed, about the tensions between Johnson and Sunak, the Treasury and Number 10. Um, But as I reflect on my book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, for all the speculation that a Chancellor is about to replace a Prime Minister, it never happens, uh, certainly in the form of a challenge from the Chancellor. Uh, So I think there's a long way for this one to be played out yet, Jordan. And I suspect Rishi Sunak has got quite a long wait. But politics is very febrile at the moment. And Boris Johnson is a figure so out of his depth on so many fronts that anything could happen. But I, I kind of still believe in the patterns of the past to some extent. And that is the power of incumbency should not be underestimated. Now we need to hear from our regular correspondent in France as we tour the world, Dominica Jewell. We certainly need to hear from her this week with relations between France and Britain getting even worse. Uh, She points out that the main potential presidential candidates are on record as stating that if elected, they'll cancel the uh, La Touquet Treaty with the notable exception of uh, Macron. Should France retreat from the effective measures they currently take? This is a a treaty between Britain and France. uh, And as she points out, they are measures to assist the UK in patrolling the border to some extent, including the points at the Eurotunnel, the Eurostar and the French ports. What do you think the consequences would be for the UK if you predict catastrophic consequences as I would? Why do you think that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel are continuing with their belligerent rhetoric and megaphone diplomacy? The answer, uh, Dominica, is that that is the uh, diplomacy that they take uh, to be electorally effective, British nationalism against the French, um, but they are wholly wrong. And William Hague wrote a very good piece in the Times on Tuesday pointing out that this is a dead end, this form of nationalism. And as I argued, I think, oh no, it wasn't in a podcast, it was on a BBC programme. The key relationship for Britain 
is with France. It's not the special relationship with the United States, always exaggerated, often uh, dangerous, uh, and now very, very uh, precarious. Johnson not consulted by Biden when he withdrew from Afghanistan, etc. But the relationship with this country on Britain's border, similar sort of size and economic weight and military weight, is fundamental. And yet both sides play games. Macron clearly has to as well with an election looming. Um, it's all counterproductive. And somehow or other, at some point, I think this will become a key foreign policy issue, uh, getting a good relationship uh, with France, but not with uh, Boris Johnson and Patel. Um, uh, Alex Hyde writes, uh, oh, Alex says, I'm a long-time listener of the podcast. Oh, great. And streamer of the li live shows. Great. Well, I hope you join us on um, December the 9th, uh, Alex, where it, the Christmas special is going to be uh, streamed live. Uh, first time emailer, though. Uh, we listen to the podcast while cooking, washing the pots, or in bed before I go to sleep. Well, I hope it doesn't send you to sleep, Alex. Uh, I hope it keeps you stimulated for hours. I'm a Sheffielder, and it would be amazing if you could do a live show in Sheffield. Yeah, that would be great, actually. Uh, quite a few emails about uh, doing shows out of London. I do, have been doing some, um, and hopefully we'll get some more going in the new year. So thank you for all of that. Uh, my thoughts are often on how Labour can get back into government and how making gains in Scotland is thought to be an unavoidable part of that. Regarding the SNP, I think they share many parallels with the Tory Brexiteers. They're both nationalists that believe in a form of political separation if you change some key terms, i.e. substitute Britain Westminster instead of EU. Then their rhetoric is very similar. Do you think there's any space for Labour to draw that parallel to construct a productive line of attack against the SNP in Scotland? Uh, yeah, Alex, I don't well, I think a very, and you acknowledge this in your email, a very supple Labour leader could do so. And it is an uh, obvious route to take. I've, I've mentioned this before, that when I see Nicola Sturgeon interviewed at length, as I have done several times during Edinburgh festivals and so on, she is brilliant on many issues but you know brilliant as in articulate and plausible and convincing she's a public performer she she has grown into that role um but when asked about her opposition to brexit and her support for an independent scotland she starts to stumble and become hesitant because you have to talk about borders and a separate currency and all the issues which uh, hor horrify her about Brexit, then come to apply in this case. However, because Keir Starmer has opted for near silence on Brexit, although they're becoming, some of the Shadow Cabinet, a bit more confident at uh, highlighting the degree to which this is what they call a botched Brexit, but because they have been so tentative, I think there is no space for them to make that particular case. They have got to show the harm that this Brexit is doing 
before they can extract a parallel with uh, Scottish independence. But you're right to suggest it is a key theme for Labour and a very difficult one in trying to persuade some of the support for the SNP who are opposed to Brexit that it's going to trigger years more of endless talk of a referendum, borders, currency, etc., etc. Alex, by the way, in uh, looking for room to breathe interviews, recommends the Brian McGee interviews uh, on YouTube. Brian McGee was a uh, philosopher, Labour MP for a time, actually, who did long form interviews with all sorts. Good tip. Uh, yeah, I love the Room to Breathe interviews. Uh, Joel Rawlings, uh, his parents live in Bexley and Sidcup, where the by-election is taking place. Some of you might be listening to this knowing the result. Uh, and he notes, um, this is kind of on-the-ground reporting, you see, he notes the level of campaigning from the Tories uh, is very high and wonders whether this is... Um, uh, a sign of uh, concern in the Tory camp. How much of a bloody nose would even a drop in their majority be for uh, Boris? Um, well, these by-elections are difficult to predict, and I think some of you say we'll be listening once we know the result. Uh, all I will say is it, 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 there will be a fall in the Tory majority, uh, and, and, and I would think in percentage terms as well as in actual terms, because the turnout will be lower, probably. Um, and these things are always interesting. Uh, as I said, I think before in a podcast, uh, the staggering by-election was the Eastbourne by-election in the autumn of 1990. And it, it began the sequence that led to the fall of Thatcher. Rock-solid Tory seat, by-election being held in a tragic situation, the death of uh, Ian Gow, Thatcher's close friend, from an IRA uh, bomb in his car, and the Tories still lost. Now, no one expects that to happen, but it will be interesting to see um, what the result is. And you will be able to extrapolate a few things from it uh, but it's interesting that they're campaigning very intensively there um, Ben Corrigan greetings from a freezing cold pool listening today on headphones while watching the kids swimming lessons uh, we'll forget about the swimming lessons Ben just focus on the you know podcast uh, you've mentioned a few times that you like many of us I suspect listen to podcasts rather than the BBC news shows these days I've just started listening to one from the foreign, from foreign policy called The Negotiators that interview protagonists from significant negotiations such as the Arab-Israeli peace talks. Good tip. I'm gonna, I'll repeat that. Foreign policy, uh, The Negotiators. That, I bet that, that can end up sounding as gripping as a thriller. So I'm going to tune into that one. Thank you for the tip. Uh, ben. Uh, right, we're going to rush through some of the others because we're running out of time. Well, I could, I, oh, I could obviously go on for hours, but you've got to finish your runs, finish your rowing, finish your walking, uh, get back to work or whatever else happens. So have I, actually. Uh, Peter S Silverton wonders where the term rock and roll politics comes. Maybe you explained it at an old show in at King's Place. Um by rock and roll, do, do you mean sort of 
contemporary rock, Adele, etc., or little Richard Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis. I assume you meant the wider cultural and socio-political context. Well, uh, rock and roll politics, it began for two reasons. I did used to say this at shows, Peter, so, uh, you, you, you know, the, at the very beginning. Um, it's partly, it was a metaphor, but it began during the coalition era. It was a metaphor for politics being all shook up um, and boy, has that metaphor remained in place ever since in bloody traumatic ways. The coalition, though, was a sign of politics being all shook up because Britain didn't normally, under first past the post or you electoral form, reform fans, didn't normally elect a coalition. Um, and, but it was also a marketing ploy to get a load of young people in at the Edinburgh Festival because they would think it was some kind of rock musical. Uh, and so it was a kind of combination of the two, and it stayed because the metaphor still applies. Uh, thank you. Andy White says uh, Steve Petrie uh, mentioned uh, in his last uh, contribution that he characterised Johnson as a risk taker. And uh, he notes, uh, Andy notes, that um, the... A German correspondent for Die Welt, who's based in Britain, uh, Thomas Killinger. Killinger, I know him actually. I do a BBC program with him. Uh, thinks that this is a more wide-ranging characteristic of the British, and he wonders whether that explains the support for uh, uh, Boris Johnson. That Johnson is a risk taker, and that corresponds with the national characteristic. I don't. I know uh, Thomas. He's a very. He's an Anglophile, and I sometimes think he romanticizes the British. Actually, the risk-taking element of Britain. Uh, a, you can't, as you suggest in the email. Actually, you can't draw these national characteristics. But also, there was a cliched view for a time that they were British or English were very small C conservative and would always vote for the status quo in referendums and so on. So what is the national characteristic? They certainly didn't vote for the status quo in the Brexit referendum. I think they are kind of risk-taking radicals in different ways. And the art is to engage that risk-taking uh, instinct to the area where you want the risk to be taken, not in the area where some of the others do. Um, but an interesting thought. And uh, yeah, Steve Petrie's view on that was, I think, featured in last week's podcast. From Falmouth in Cornwall, Peter Wilkening says, um, Keir, must be, Keir Starmer must be scratching his head for an answer to how you capture Boris Johnson or damage him politically, given that the polls have reverted again to a small Tory lead. Well, yeah, you certainly have to take a deep breath and be patient. Uh, in these circumstances and I think the polls must be a source of great torment uh, to Keir Starmer because you must dare to hope that a lead will be sustained amidst the current range of uh, situations that have happened. I haven't done the podcast since we had the uh, Pepper the Pig speech at the CBI. I think yeah time to reflect on Pepper the Pig uh, in, in in another week because there's a whole range of different things. Um, Jeff Strange wonders who the challenges are in the uh, context of um, uh, that Pepper the Pig speech and other dramas revolving around Boris Johnson. Difficult to choose as most challengers seem to lack the star chamber quality. Doris, no, definitely not. That's me speaking. Sunak, Gove, Rees-Mogg, Patel, 
None of these names do much for me, but wait, Lee Rowley. Yeah, on this podcast, we are the Lee Rowley fans based on the fact that one person predicted at King's Place the rise of Lee Rowley and it's he's been soaring ever since um, thank you Jeff oh he says looking forward to the King's Place rock and roll live Christmas special see you there Jeff and see all of you there hopefully in some form or another uh, Neil Gwynn is a civil engineer and he says I'd be interested in your understanding I, I gave a uh, uh, some spiel last week on the situation with the railways and the government's plans. I'd be interested in your understanding of why the press and media get it so wrong about the rationale behind the high-speed rail scheme. Is it deliberate? Is it opposition to government expenditure? Is it that a project of this scale hasn't been attempted for a generation? So there's confusion. Um, he also wonders whether in England, anyway, uh, there is a kind of acceptance of the mediocre in terms of uh, public provision. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I was talking last week about the high-speed rail project was initiated to address the issue of capacity. Uh, and therefore, the choice was, do you busk it with the existing structures or address capacity by going for the best? and high-speed rail was an uncharacteristic example of Britain going for the best. And uh, apart from this stutter last week where uh, the, uh, it wasn't as ambitious as it was originally envisaged, I think it's a combination, Anil, of treasury conservatism and fiscal orthodoxy. They basically believe public spending is a waste and dangerous. Um, I think it is cultural uh, that there is an acceptance of uh, the mediocre in terms of the provision of public services. And I think you, you are right also to say there is confusion because these ambitious projects are so rare uh, in this country. We are not good at infrastructure. Now, I don't want to romanticise about other countries. They We all struggle. Uh, but God, do we struggle more here in some cases. And finally, Rob Jackson uh, from Crouch End. You're, you're nearby, Rob. Uh, out of curiosity, do you happen to know whether any members of the Cabinet or Shadow Cabinet listen regularly to your podcast? I can't help feeling that we might be better governed and have a more effective opposition if they did. Well, that's a very nice uh, question. Rob, I'm going to end with this question. There can be no better question to end with. Actually, I do know of some who listen. Uh, Rob uh, from the government and the shadow cabinet um, and some who uh, give me feedback through various means um, so yeah so they're listening it's made absolutely no difference to government and effective opposition <laughs> Rob um, um, maybe if uh, Boris Johnson tuned in there will be no no that that wouldn't change him he's unchangeable um uh, Rob says, by the way, I believe David Lammy lives a few doors away from Tristram Hunt. Connections everywhere. Everything connects. Uh, yeah. Follow the connections. To go back to that question uh, Sarah Murphy asked about engaging people, let's try and make the connections in whatever means we have, including through podcasts like this. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. I'm really sorry if I didn't get your question. I read them all. They inform the kind of 
talks that we all have together and at the live shows as well so do keep them coming in um, and I'll try and get to your one next week as I say do subscribe because for the next few weeks it might be coming out on a Tuesday or first thing Wednesday uh, and yeah hope to see some of you on December the 8th in Shoreham uh, on the south coast and December the 9th at the King's Place you can get the tickets on the respective websites thank you for brilliant questions and all of you for listening wherever you are whatever you're doing let's gather together next week to make sense of it all take care thanks a lot bye